0: Well, I have very much enjoyed these last few Sundays with you in this no going back sermon series we've been in a couple of weeks ago. We looked at these no going back moments where there's a before and an after, and we talked a lot about the grief that can often be in those moments of no going back when you step into a new life, a new decision. Last week, we talked a lot about forgiveness as a piece of that journey, these big Thresholds are crossed in our lives, something changes. We talked about letting go of expectations as being a way to move into forgiveness. And today, from that reading with John O'Donohue on courage, that's where I want to focus. I want to focus on courage. There's so much more to say about grief and forgiveness, but courage, that tender, gentle strong thing that helps us in those moments. That's where I want to start today. And to get there, I want to share a story with you this morning. To get to courage, I want to share a story with you about a group of people, a small group of people, of religious people and leaders who were torn from their homeland, who were torn from their religious community. And I want to tell you about this small group of religious leaders for two reasons. First, it is a really compelling and powerful teaching story about finding courage in those no-going-back moments. This small group is a great story of that, of finding courage in moments of great suffering. And second, this small group of people, through some kind of holy alchemy, if you will, they transformed their suffering into something remarkable. They transformed their suffering into a new and reimagined understanding of themselves and the world and the holy, if you will. So let me tell you the story. A long time ago, 2,600 years ago, 2,600 years ago, there was this small group of very well-educated religious leaders, some civic leaders from Jerusalem. The religious leaders, they were in the priestly class, This is just a little bit of history to share with you this morning. The religious leaders were in charge of the rules and the rituals around the temple in Jerusalem. As you probably know, or maybe know, the temple in Jerusalem was an incredibly sacred place of worship. It was understood to be the place where God physically resided. The city of Jerusalem was part of the kingdom of Judah. And if I'm telling this story honestly, what you need to know is that it was the kingdom of Judah was really a puny little kingdom in some ways compared to the Egyptians in the south and the massive Babylonian empire to the east. So they were often in some sort of the kingdom of Judah and the people of Jerusalem are often in some kind of subordinate relationship to these other greater powers, so, 2,600 years ago, the kingdom of Judah, thinking that the power of the Babylonian Empire, their neighbors to the east, not neighbors, their enemies to the east, they thought that power was declining. And so they rebelled against the Babylonians and said, We're going to throw our lot in with the Egyptians and create some kind of alliance there. It turned out to be a pretty serious miscalculation. The Babylonian Empire and the king of Babylonia was not nearly as weak as they had appeared and soon came back in force and put the smackdown on this little kingdom of Judah. They attacked Jerusalem and they burned the temple to the ground. This is history. It may or may not be alive for you, but what you have to understand. Are a couple of things. One, stuff burns down all the time, right? And even in our our history as a church, in 1888 when we worshiped in downtown, our building caught fire and a whole bunch of it burned down. And I'm sure that people were sad, that there were tears, there was a lot of concern and worry. But there wasn't the heartbreak, there wasn't the devastation that these people in Jerusalem felt when their sacred temple was destroyed. Because In that time, in that culture, there was an understanding, it was shared among all of the people of the Near East, that God resided with a particular plot of land, a particular location, like soil, maybe a mountain or a river. That was the way deities and gods were understood. They belonged to a particular place, and that place was the temple. That was was God's... Address. That was a place supposedly protected by God, and it had been destroyed. So there was serious despair. Not only was Jerusalem and the temple destroyed, but these religious leaders of Jerusalem and a prophet named Ezekiel, they were taken into captivity. They were taken into captivity in Babylon. So in Babylon, reflecting on their city laid waste and the holy temple destroyed. They began to ask, like all of us do when we experience crisis like this, they began to ask deep theological questions. What does it mean? I like to imagine them asking one another in captivity, what does it mean that the temple, this holy place, this place where God lived, has been destroyed? Where is God now? Is God in the ruins somehow of the temple? And how can we worship? How can we worship and sing songs to God in this foreign land by the rivers in Babylon when God is not even here? Because remember, God is tied to a piece of land, a place There was serious despair and questions. And we can relate to this on some level, can't we? I mean, maybe not that exact experience in that exact setting, but pretty darn close. When something is lost or changes in our lives, we ask those questions. Why? Where is love? Where is God in this? We experience grief. And as I think about what we lifted up in our cycle of life, in our prayer time uh, this Sunday, we heard those experiences of deep loss and grief. It is complex and dark and lonely, that grief. And the questions are normal and natural. Where is love? Where is God in all of this? As I think about this exiled community in Babylon, I can imagine, as the poet says, that they were bereft of any belief in themselves, and all they unknowingly leaned on had fallen away. Their hearts were dark and their bodies full of fear. When I was in seminary some years ago, I took a class called Border Links. It was a class in which we learned about the economic and the human dynamics at the Mexico-American, United States border as it related to immigration and the North American Free Trade Agreement. And as part of this class, we spent a week at the Arizona-Mexico border in Nogales, a town split by that fence. We visited with different agencies and organizations, including a number of faith communities, One night, on the Mexico side of the border, we gathered at a church basement to have dinner with people, mostly men, people who had just been deported from their homes in the United States, people who had lived in the United States for years in some cases, who had spouses in Texas or in Georgia or in North Carolina, and they had children in the United States, the money that they earned supported those families, and in so many cases, it also supported their families and relatives in Mexico. They weren't in the United States legally, and the government had found them or arrested them and busted them back across the border, and this church where we gathered with them, it was the place where they had come to eat, to regroup, to wash their clothes, to figure out what came next, how to reconnect with their families. Over soup and bread, there was suffering and sorrow. Again and again, they said these things like, we just want to support our families. We want to be with our families, with our children. In the sharing of that sorrow, being with those men, seeing those men as fathers and husbands, as human beings, as incredibly hard workers, in bearing witness to their lives, torn apart by immigration policy that then and now still desperately needs overhaul, there was something. There was something stirring in that darkness. Perhaps the tiniest pieces of kindling were being gathered for them, perhaps for us, the tiniest pieces of kindling were being gathered, and I know in my own life I carry those faces and stories with me to you all, to this church. I imagine what it felt like to be torn from the life they knew, to be back in Mexico, and I know as we deepen our racial justice work, this lens of critically analyzing race will help us around immigration reform as well. But in that moment, amidst the questions of what now, something, something was stirring. And even if we've never been exiled or deported, we can relate to the grief of those no-going-back moments because it's the same feeling, the same grief we have on a dream Dies, or when the future we imagined and talked about and planned for dissolves in a second, or when a barrier is placed on the road, we have said, I'm walking down this road for the rest of my life, and boom, a barrier is put in place. And in those moments, around that table with soup and bread, we all become religious people, You all, I don't care what you believe, you become a religious person because you start to ask those deeply religious questions. Where is love in this? Where is God in this? How could love, how could God let this thing happen? And sometimes, and sometimes in those painful moments and in those questions, we discover a thread a thought, a spark that we did not expect. Sometimes it's there, and sometimes it's the presence of another bearing witness that lights the spark or sees it in us. So I have to believe, friends, that's what happened to this group of people that were in exile. They were mourning. They were in despair. They were trying to make sense of this, and something happened. Little pieces of kindling were gathered. A spark was struck A flame began. I don't know the details, but something happened in captivity in Babylon to this group of religious leaders and the prophet Ezekiel, and they began to approach that difficult threshold, that place of how do we make sense of this with this wild imagining. And they started to reimagine God. They felt despair at first. And then something cleansed the fear, or at least enough of the fear that a flame could burn, and they found a thread of courage, and they began to dream and imagine and ask, well, what if God is not attached to a place, or a piece of land, or a mountain? What if God's not attached to the temple? What if God is bigger than that? What if God is more present than we thought, not just in a location or an area, but what if God is here with us now, even in exile, in this hell, in this suffering, even though the temple is gone, what if God is still here? I like to think at that moment, one of them said to another, hey, good God, man, <laughs> we have been imagining a God that is Far too small, too puny, too limited, too tiny. What if God is more than we thought? What if God is bigger, more expansive than we imagined? I think about the story, Allison, that you shared in our call to worship this morning. I think about those moments in our lives that she spoke about where amidst the fear, that sense of stuckness and despair, amidst the fear, we are held by the friend, by a friend with love, and we are able to reach for a diamond thought of light, and we follow that light into new life. I think we have those moments, not just this group of people in Babylon 2,600 years ago, but today, right now, where we have these moments. Maybe it's talking with your partner or being in a circle here at church, or if you work with a therapist or a counselor, something happens there, and your worldview, your set of assumptions collapse, and you say, holy mackerel, this is different, bigger than I thought. I've been thinking, I've been imagining my life too small. It could be more than what it is. It could be bigger. It could be more expansive, more loving, larger. We don't get there by an easy road. Richard Rohr, author and writer, says it like this. Because we're talking about new life. Here. We're talking about those moments where despair is heavy and something happens. A thread of hope comes and new life emerges. He says, resurrection will take care of itself as long as death can be trusted. Resurrection will take care of itself as long as death can be trusted. Resurrection, new life, this life right here. Maybe it's, maybe it's literal resurrection. I don't know. I, it works for me if it's this life. Resurrection in this life, new hope, new love, new possibility. That will take care of itself as long as death can be trusted. And so the question for us, friends, the question that all of us must wrestle with is can we trust that new life and love will emerge when we fully surrender to the pain, the grief, or the sorrow that is in our lives, that hell that we're in? Can we trust that new life will emerge? Maybe it's a relationship ending or a loved one dying or the loss of your home or your job. Something is gone. Something dies, literally or figuratively if we trust that parts of life, the parts we know and even the parts that we know and love and then those parts that we know we shouldn't be holding on to but we are, if we trust that we can let go of those parts of life, that they will die, they must die, then somehow we open the door to the possibility of new life. And that's what these exiles in Babylon did. Their old belief died. Their old understanding of God died and they imagined something new. Something new was born. It doesn't matter if you agree with them or like their new idea of God or not because it's a story about courage, ultimately, and how the spirit of life is with us even in exile, even in hell. The spirit of life moves and stirs in those threshold moments, those no-going-back moments. Years later, these exiles returned to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. They put down in writing their new understanding of God, this all-powerful creator of the heavens and earth present throughout the cosmos. This is the stuff from Genesis, friends. Their experience in captivity in Babylon shaped the arc and the narrative of the Hebrew scriptures. And it took great courage to get there. Courage to trust death. Of course, the big death I'm talking about, our own death, but courage to trust all the little deaths along the way, the death of an idea a belief, the death of what we thought God was to be open to what God might actually be, the death of hopes and ideas and dreams. Resurrection will take care of itself as long as death can be trusted. That's the heart of faith. It's the heart of faith right there. And I want to close by telling you where I see this heart, this courage. Courage and heart are deeply connected words. I want to tell you where I see that beating very strongly in this church. And it's in our racial justice work that we are moving into. Yesterday, we had the second of three trainings for this first group of 40 people who are being trained. And it was a room full of courageous, loving people who were being available and vulnerable with one another. The white folks in the room, I include myself in this, we were beginning to understand what it means to be White, Really, really starting to get a sense of that, many of us for the first time. What it means to be white as we move through the world, racialized as white people. And it took courage for those of us who identify as white to make blunders. I had some moments where I was deeply embarrassed about things I had not seen or thought about before. Because it's not work we've been asked to do. And I saw incredible courage and vulnerability displayed in the people of color in this congregation who claim this as their faith community as they walked with us in that work. They participated and listened. And that is not easy in a white-dominated space. As a person of color, you feel... I think you have to feel, even if it's your faith community, some vulnerability, some fear, some wondering if this is really a safe space. If I start to talk about my experience as a person of color, will people hear that? I saw incredible courage yesterday. Things were dying. Old assumptions and worldviews were dying. And something new, not yet born, is gathering kindling. And what was clear in that gathering is this is our faith community. All of us, the white people who are here and the people of color, we claim this faith and that universalist message of love and hope, and we are all, all of us, trying to follow that thread of hope and courage. That's what bound us together. So I want to end with these words. Take courage, friends. The way is often hard. The path is never clear. And the stakes are very high. Take courage. For deep down, there is another truth. You are not alone. You are not alone. Amen.